0: So how can we make this case? Well, one way we can do it is to point out to people that there's no essential difference between the embryos you once were and the adults you are today that would justify killing you at that earlier stage.
2: Arguments cannot be religious or non-religious. Arguments can either be valid or invalid, or sound or unsound. Substance view is the idea that from when you come into existence of fertilization until you die naturally, you are the same individual at every point in your life. So if it is wrong to kill you now, it was wrong to kill you then. All right, welcome to the Pro-Life Thinking Podcast, a podcast where we discuss the pro-life issue and other issues related to bioethics in a way that's reasonable and persuasive. I'm your host, Clinton Wilcox, and to my my left, as I'm looking at you through the screen, uh, my right, as I'm looking at the screen, I have uh, over this way.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Hey, everybody. How's it going?
2: Uh, go, go ahead and uh, g- give your name because, you know, we'll be straight. Well, my name is Nathan the- Apodaca,
1: and I think I should clarify for any of our listeners, I am not the Nathan Apodaca who recently became famous on TikTok. He's a completely different person. Uh, the last couple of weeks have been interesting because over the past couple of weeks, I've been having hundreds of messages on Instagram, on Facebook, on Twitter, of people trying to connect with me. I actually got have had requests for media interviews with people Googling my na- googling Nathan Apodaca, my name popping up first, uh, related to my pro-life work, which isn't too bad because my uh, the readership on a lot of my articles has, ex- has exploded over 100% in the past week. So it's not too bad, but... No, I'm not the Nathan Apodaca who recently became famous on TikTok for singing along to Fleetwood Mac. He's somebody completely different. Uh, And actually, some people are doing some really great stuff for him because he has been having a really tough time financially. So people have been able to raise money for him and uh, find ways to help support him so he can uh, help support his children. So it actually there is a really good story to it. But I'm not I'm not that guy. I'm a completely different person.
2: Well, I mean, you know, you, you say you're a completely different person, but I've never seen the two of you in the same room, so, you know. This is
1: true, and come to think of it, I've never seen me and him in the same room, so you might be right. Uh,
2: this morning, we have a couple of things to talk about. The first one is an article that was brought to our attention in a uh, pro-life group that we're a member of on Facebook. I won't say the name of it because it is, a, it is a private group, but this kind of came to our attention, and we figured, oh, this might be a, this might make a good episode to podcast about. And we'll probably be writing about it on the respective blogs that we write for too. This particular one was written by someone who was apparently used to be a speaker for Focus on the Family and used to do pro-life talks through them and has written an article. I'm going to go ahead and share the screen because I'm just going to go ahead and read the article. The woman's name is Shannon Dingle. I'd never heard of her before you know, I, I've, I'm i familiar with Focus on the Family, but I haven't I haven't really done a lot or read a lot through them. Uh, I, I'm familiar with Dr. D. James Dobson, and he did that evangelism explosion program, which my church did when I was a kid. So I'm a little bit familiar with, with their material, but I've never actually heard of Shannon Dingle, never heard her give a talk. But the article that she wrote, she titled, I was in the pro-life movement, but then widowed with six kids, I prepared for an abortion. And then there's a, I'm not sure what you call this, but there's a little blurb here under that that says, the pro-life movement's caricatures make for good propaganda, but terrible policy. People, real people become pregnant. Now, I'm not entirely sure how pro-life she has been. Like I said, I'm not familiar with her work, but here's another article that was sent my way in which she wrote, I'm pro-life and I'm voting for Hillary. Here's why. So back in 2016, she was a Hillary Clinton supporter. I can understand if someone doesn't or didn't vote for Trump, but if you're pro-life, you can't vote for the Democrat politician either because they're very much extreme on the abortion issue, supporting abortion up until the point of birth. And sometimes, in some cases, even after the point of birth, if the child was born alive after a botched abortion, for example. So you really can't vote for the the Democrat politician either if you consider yourself pro-life. So it's questionable how serious she's ever been with this. So I'll, I'll go ahead and just kind of read until until we see an ad, and then we can kind of talk about it a little bit, then I'll continue after that. All right. So it says here, the summer of 2019 was full of surprises. The first was hard-earned. My husband was promoted to president of his engineering firm at age 37. Seeing that lifetime goal realized was pure joy. Two weeks later, we drove three hours east to vacation at the beach for a week. It was Lee, our six children, ages seven to 12, and me. It was relaxing and jubilant until it wasn't. On July eighteenth, 2019, a wave struck my husband with such force that his neck broke as his head hit the packed sand. Most of the kids witnessed the accident. He would not be declared dead until 24 hours later, but I knew almost immediately. As we returned home, a family of seven rather than the family of eight that arrived at the beach less than a week earlier, friends carried me and the kids through all the next steps, from choosing a casket and burial site to learning how to access our joint bank account and then as the funeral passed and the next week wore on another surprise became undeniable so this first portion here she's kind of outlining about how her her husband had died from from being struck by a wave that's something that i didn't know could happen um this should perhaps serve as a as a cautionary tale for those people who who like to go to the beach on vacation so uh, we definitely we definitely feel for her that that her her husband died just on a on a vacation to the beach And so, you know, we don't want to denigrate that or or put that down in in any respect. It's just that the conclusions that she's going to draw from this event are very questionable, especially if someone considers themselves to be pro-life. Right.
1: Obviously, she deserves our full sympathy and our full compassion for what has happened. Um, And as the article continues, she does. uh, Her life became even more tragic around the same time. but. We haven't really even gotten into the point where she actually argues for why she left the pro-life movement or why the pro-life position inevitably fails. We'll continue on with that.
2: Well, well to be fair, she never actually argues for that.
1: This is true. She doesn't. I will say yeah. one thing, though, regarding her thumbnail at the top um, when she says here, the pro-life movement's caricatures make for good propaganda but terrible policy. People, real people, become pregnant. I think we do need to respond to this claim real quick because this is a very common argument that is used by defenders of abortion. And they will say, you know, I care about real people's lives. Well, we need to take a step back and ask a question. Who counts as real people? Do the unborn count as real people? Well, and she's her argument is going to say, well, no. Okay, that's what separates the pro-life position from the pro-choice position. Do the unborn count as real people in any sense whatsoever? We need to resolve that argument first. Because if we don't, we're obviously going to get a lot of confusion here, and we're going to get the argument that, oh, you pro-lifers don't care about real people. Well, actually, we do. We contend that the unborn are real people, except that there are some differences, but those differences don't ultimately matter. But right. we can yeah. get back to that in just a moment as we go through the article.
2: Okay, so she continues on here with, with the heading, One More Shock. I started feeling sick in a similar way to how I was sick with my two biological children and with miscarriages before them. I paused in my dead husband's closet where I had been looking for some important documents that he had always kept safe so I could apply for Social Security survivor benefits, and I counted days. In my grief, numbers were clunky, but eventually I calculated through the calendar in my head. Nine days late. My period was nine days late. My period has never been late except for the times when I've been pregnant. I rested my head against Lee's t-shirts, inhaling the scent they held like a memory. I took a few deep breaths. I willed my math to be wrong. Okay, so here she's recounting on top of the fact that her husband had died at the beach. Now she's realizing that she's pregnant. And she continues on here. It wasn't though. Here I was, a widow showing all the signs of pregnancy while living with chronic health conditions that would make pregnancy life-threatening. I knew I couldn't have this baby. I didn't know how to be a single mom of six, so a seventh child was unthinkable if I even survived the pregnancy, and my kids couldn't lose another parent. Um, stopping here before the next heading, again, it's a fairly short article, but now we see that not only did she discover that she's pregnant, but now she has to, has to raise six kids on her own, and the seventh child was coming along, and now she had to raise all of those kids without her husband. She has some some chronic health conditions, which would make pregnancy life threatening. And so she was starting to worry that her kids might lose another parent. So the, the first thing that immediately comes to mind, though, and this was something that someone on the thread in that pro-life group had mentioned, I thought it was a good point is if these chronic health conditions are so serious that it makes pregnancy life-threatening, then why wouldn't she have her, you know, get a a tubal ligation or the husband go through and have a vasectomy? If the health conditions really made pregnancy life-threatening, then there are steps she could have taken that she wouldn't have to to go through with seven pregnancies. The life-threatening nature of them didn't change just because her husband died. And so the question is, are these health conditions really so serious that, going through the pregnancy is really that serious for her? Or is she over exaggerating them now to justify her, her thoughts regarding wanting to go in and have an abortion? She doesn't actually say what her chronic health conditions were.
1: And I will add trauma does have, and she did experience very real trauma with the death of her mm-hmm. husband and now having to raise children on her own. The problem is that trauma does have a way of clouding our moral thinking on other issues. And we don't deny in any way that she went through a very traumatic experience. She obviously did and does deserve our sympathy, but at the same time we need to understand that we need to think clearly about what's going on here. And like I said, and we'll continue with this when she talks about how she decided to have an abortion was she's still assuming the unborn aren't fully human. Now she says, well, I'm pro-life, but that should raise an inevitable question. Why are you pro-life on abortion? Well, it's, the only real answer is well, abortion kills an innocent human being. Okay, then. What is the difference then between your unborn child and your born children that justifies killing one to help the others? Would we allow her to kill one of her born children? Say she has a two year old. She's obviously going through all these significant problems with her life. Would it be acceptable for her to kill her born child, one of her born children, in order to make ends meet and to alleviate the stress that she's under? Well, the answer, of course, is no. Even though we do sympathize with her, we would not allow her to take that step. Okay, what's the difference then between the born children that she can't kill and the unborn child that she can We don't get an argument for that in the article. We just simply get an assumption that, oh, the unborn child isn't really a real person. She still needs to argue for that, and we'll continue with that in the article.
2: Yeah. And so when it says here that she has chronic health conditions, it might be that she has health conditions that might make the pregnancy more difficult, but she might be over-exaggerating that, you know, because of her trauma, she might be, she might be, you know, her mind might be making more of it than than it actually is, uh, but she doesn't actually get specific with what her health problem, health conditions are. So we can't really make that determination. So continuing on here with the next heading, considering what was unthinkable. I had been a pro-life speaker for events sponsored by Focus on the Family and the Southern Baptist Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. By mid-2016, my views had begun to change. Yet three years later, some of that rhetoric rose within me. I worried, what if people offering us help would rescind those offers if they found out what I was considering? I wondered, would my living children hate me because I chose us over the pregnancy of another child? I wanted to weep, but I was all out of tears after spending the last week on tasks like choosing the outfit for my husband's corpse to wear and holding my children while they wailed, I want daddy. I didn't need anyone else to dole out shame. I was masterfully manufacturing it all by myself i didn't take a pregnancy test even as the days passed i couldn't handle going to a store on my own yet and i certainly wasn't going to ask anyone else to buy a test to confirm that i needed an abortion the shame spiral in which i was residing was strong i wasn't sure i could be loved if i didn't risk everything to bring another child into the world Uh, This is how you think when you've been groomed by the pro-life movement to see pregnancy in black and white with no room for gray. I decided to call my friend Erin to get her help, knowing she wouldn't judge me. Before I could do that, the cramps arrived. These weren't the normal menstrual ones, but the kind that come when your body expels tissue that could have been a child. The pregnancy ended on its own. Then I didn't tell anyone for six months as I grieved the public death of my husband and the private end of a pregnancy. I didn't want to debate my pain with anyone who disagreed and I didn't want to relive it with anyone who didn't. So now we see that the the pregnancy ended on its own. She ended up having a miscarriage, which could have been a a result of all of the grief that she was going through, as um, severe grief can be a, a reason that some pregnancies end prematurely. Other than that... She's basically outlining here all of the thoughts that, that are going through her head. And it can be beneficial to know what these thoughts are, especially for those of us who haven't really gone through the loss of, of a husband and having to raise six kids on your own. But she talks here about being groomed by the pro-life movement. And that's something that I suppose could happen. But this is more emotional language in that it she doesn't actually tell us what allegedly went on by being groomed, because if, if pro-life people actually believe that the embryo is a full human being from fertilization, then we, we can't justify killing that embryo e- even after a severe trauma like you losing your husband. So when she says she was groomed by the pro-life movement, which is her word, of course, that, that kind of implies that there are some nefarious Uh, motivations here for the pro-life movement. You know, we got the same thing after Norma McCorvey died and we did a a podcast on that with father Frank Pavone in which people were saying that Norma McCorvey had confessed as a deathbed confession that she herself was groomed by the pro-life movement. And she was actually given money to go out there and and be pro-life essentially. And, you know, these are just emotional accusations by people who don't want to interact with the, with the actual argument that pro-life people give that, human life begins at fertilization. And even though she was speaking for focus focus on the family, it evidently never really sank in with her that human life begins at fertilization because if she believes that the embryo is as human as her other six children, she wouldn't even think of wanting to end that child's life prematurely, just like she wouldn't think of trying to end the lives of her six children just because it's going to be more difficult now to raise them without her husband.
1: I also got to ask one question here. I mean, and like I said before, we should be very sympathetic to what she's going through here. And maybe some pro-life people were jerks to her. It's entirely possible. It has happened before and it can happen again. However, why was it abortion that was the only option that was immediately considered? We know a lot more about pregnancy now than we ever have. And why is it that not, there were not other options that were considered in saying that, well, I'm in a life-threatening uh, position. Well, oh, okay. Do we have options, though, to try and alleviate whether or not that is life-threatening? A question that needs to be asked here is, if the unborn are human beings, just like the rest of us, what should our answer be to a hard circumstance like this? Should we go ahead and just immediately kill them in order to alleviate a circumstance? Or should we try to find another alternative to keep both humans alive instead of trying to kill one to benefit another? And this brings up... The pro-life argument i think that we should try to focus on here our our boss scott klusendorf has says there are three words that pro-lifers need to remember syllogism 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 is just a formally laid out argument it's wrong to intentionally kill innocent human beings elective abortion intentionally kills an innocent human being therefore elective abortion is wrong We don't get any interaction with that argument here. In fact, she actually later in the article, she will say she goes, well, you know, I considered abortions that way I uh, wouldn't put my children uh, at risk. Okay, fair enough. Why is that the only option, though? Why are are there not other options being considered? Now, obviously, she's not going to talk about that because of medical privacy, and I completely respect that. But it's a bit ironic that many within the abortion choice movement don't have very much creative thinking when it comes to solving problems like this. And it's because they rule out the unborn as human, being, as human beings before we even got, get to a discussion. And then they say, oh, well, this woman's life is in danger. Shouldn't she have an abortion? Well, my response is to simply ask, well, yeah, that's a hard circumstance. But if there's a second human being involved here, what do you think our answer should be? Should we try to, shouldn't we try to work to make sure that both human beings are kept alive instead of just arbitrarily ruling out one and then killing them in order to benefit the other?
2: Right. So continuing on here, her next heading, I didn't plan for my husband to die. I'm not pro-life anymore, not in the political sense. I firmly believe that decisions regarding pregnancy should be between a patient and doctor, not predetermined and personally by a mostly male governing body. My body shouldn't be up for public debate.
1: I got to jump in here with something. Just personally here, whenever I hear somebody say, oh, it's a mostly male government, or I'm not going to let male legislators say what I can do without my body, You clearly don't have a lot of deep thinking going on here. A lot of female legislators use the exact same arguments that male pro-life ones use. In fact, any statistic that uh, has surveyed people's views on abortion shows there is no correlation between the gender of a person and their views on abortion. But even then, if the majority of the government is the majority of legislators, people who write laws are men, what does that say about the unborn? It doesn't tell us anything. If the unborn are human beings then we should, it doesn't matter whether or not male legislators are making laws protecting them. It is the humanity of the unborn that matters, not the gender of the people making the laws to protect the unborn. By the way, if every single legislator in government today was a female and they passed a law opposing abortion, would our critics then support such a law? Well, of course not. So bringing up the gender of the legislators is simply a screen. It's a red herring. People are just saying it's like, well, I'm going to focus on the gender of the legislators, even though it has no real base bearing on my position here. It's it's not a really good way to argue and it's very lazy thinking, actually.
2: Yeah. Right now she's kind of devolving into pro-choice talking points as opposed to actually giving a, a real reason for why she should forsake her pro life views or, you know, such that they were. They they don't seem to have been very very strongly grounded at any rate. But you know, focusing on the gender of the legislators is you know, a smokescreen, like you were saying. In fact, of course, now there's a, a Supreme Court justice who's being considered for, for the bench, Amy Coney Barrett, and one of the things that the Democrats are focusing on is the fact that she is pro-life and she she's also the first woman of school-age children to be considered for the Supreme Court. So she, Amy Coney Barrett, is a, is a very real counter-example to the pro-choice position that women need abortion in order to be successful. Yeah. Amy Coney Barrett has, what was it, six, six or seven kids, two of those she adopted from Haiti, and and one is a special needs child. She has a kid with Down syndrome. And she not only is she able to fulfill her career as a judge, she's currently serving on the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals, but she's now being considered for the highest American court of the land, the Supreme Court. So clearly you can you can have children and you can be successful in your career. And Amy Coney Barrett provides a very real counterexample to pro-choice talking points. And I do have another article here that I'm going to point to also, which which serves as a counterexample. But let's go ahead and finish this one first. So continuing on, if abortion wasn't an option, I likely would have faced death if the pregnancy had gone to full term. My kids would have faced the death of not only their father, but also me, their mother. We've barely survived this past year and few months as it is, but we wouldn't have made it with my physical and mental health overwhelmed by an unsafe pregnancy. The pro-life movement can make up all the caricatures they want about people who didn't plan well, but I was happily married to a living husband when I got pregnant. If I could have planned for him not to die, I would have. Caricatures make for good propaganda but terrible policy. People, real people, become pregnant, and those people each carry their own stories, nuanced and unique. Propaganda is easy, Twitter insults from anonymous accounts are too, but people, real people, have have real stories like mine. My story is heartbreaking. Telling it is tender, but I need you to understand that real people like me are living real stories. I'm glad I had the right to make decisions about how my story would unfold instead of having it decided for me by the Supreme Court or Congress. And there's her article. The the ironic thing is she is accusing the pro-life movement of making up caricatures about people that didn't plan well, but it's really the pro-choice people like Shannon here who is caricaturing pro-life people. Pro-life people focus on the argument that human life begins at fertilization. For the most part, you you, you can find trolls on Twitter who would do this, but for the most part... Pro-life people are not interested in caricaturing or demonizing pro-choice people. We're just interested in saying that we need to protect human life in all its forms. And that includes when they're unborn, when they're still in the womb. We, We need to protect human life at all points of development.
1: Again, we're back to that question begging that we opened the article with, which was that, oh, well, real people, we're focused on real people. Back when Scott Klusendorf, several years ago, debated uh, Mara Clark of the Abortion Support Network in the UK, she made this very same point. She said, Well, yeah, you're concerned with zygotes and embryos. I'm concerned with real people's lives. I'm concerned with real women. And Scott's response was to simply ask, He goes, Well, who counts as real people? If you go back to a book like, say, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, you have a story where Huck Finn he's late for supper, and Aunt Sally, Tom Sawyer's Aunt Sally, is very, she's a woman who's prone to confusion. And she says, well, you know, where have you been? Why are you late for supper? And he says, well, I was on a steamboat and it blew a cylinder head. Something blew up on the boat. She says, oh, well, was anybody hurt? And he goes, no, ma'am, it killed a Negro, but nobody was hurt. And as Scott points out, what was just assumed about the black man? It's assumed he's not one of us. He's not people who could get hurt. And we overcame that prejudice largely as a country, even though we're still dealing with the after effects of it. However, when it comes to the unborn, we make the exact same mistake. We say, well, you know, I care about real people. Well, do the unborn count as real people? And that's where people started saying, they go, well, no, they don't. They're located in the womb. Well, really? Well, why does that matter? How does moving six inches down the birth canal suddenly transform you into a fake person into a real person? It doesn't. And so, unfortunately, even with a very emotional argument like this, and I will say, I have a lot of sympathy for Shannon here. It sounds she's had a very hard life. And as the, the bio in the article says, she also is a sex trafficking survivor. I have a lot of sympathy for her. But our sympathy, or our ability to exercise empathy doesn't change the reality of moral truth. The moral truth related to what pro-lifers are arguing is that the unborn are members of the human family who have been denied equal justice under the law. And yeah, some pro-lifers are idiots who caricature, caricature people. But there are defenders of abortion who do the exact same thing fact that some people on both sides of the aisle are idiots doesn't change our argument in any way shape or form and it doesn't change whether or not we should exercise empathy we should have a lot of empathy for somebody in this situation at the same time though that doesn't change the fact the unborn are members of the human family and have been denied equal protection under the law from being unjustly killed that is the argument we need to focus on and should be the core of the abortion debate and then we go from there and exercise empathy
2: Right. This is just kind of an example of pro-choice articles that forego the discussion on when human life begins and just tries to use stories to illustrate why women need abortion. But like uh, like Nathan was saying, that this is really just question making because it assumes that that the unborn are not human beings. Uh, you know, we we might imagine a hundred years ago, back when oh I, f- I forget when when slavery was abolished. I think it was the late eighteen hundreds, right? Eighteen sixty-five And the United States. Yeah, so so two hundred years ago, when slavery was still legal, we we might imagine a a, a pro-slavery, per, you know, a, a plant a white plantation owner who had slaves writing an article like this, where he does he doesn't try to contend with arguments that black people are are human and are are persons, but he just kind of writes why uh, why plantation owners need slavery in order to be financially successful, but of course that that really ignores the the key issue here of you know black people are people and they're human and so enslaving them is is a moral atrocity. And so now fast forward 200 years later we have abortion and the same things are going on. We have people who are just writing stories about how abortion is needed from by women but they they don't they don't actually address the arguments that pro life people are making that human life begins with fertilization.
1: You know and it's actually it's really funny that you bring that up there's a very good example of this. In uh, in Kevin Kevin Belmonte in his biography of William Wilberforce, who was the leader of the British anti-slavery movement, uh, one of the other ministers of parliament wrote a letter attacking Wilberforce and saying, you know, you focus so much on, you know, these poor Negroes, but you don't focus on real people like the poor British children. You don't focus on the women who are stuck living in whorehouses. You don't focus on all these other issues. Well, by the way, Wilberforce actually did focus on all those other issues and was willing to work for prison reform, for school reform, for protection of children. But the assumption was that black people were somehow less human or weren't even human enough to count uh, as desire as deserving of justice and equal protection under the law. It was only assumed, but it was never argued for. And that's exactly what we've got going on here. Why don't the unborn get together? Well, people always and they simply assume the unborn aren't human or that somehow that even early term the unborn early in pregnancy aren't even human and that's the argument that we need to focus on Hmm. then once we resolve the question of whether or not the unborn are human then we can focus on how to address these other issues such as pregnancy that is going to be dangerous to a mother's life such as other hard cases where a woman can't afford to raise a child if the unborn are human beings that should be what directs our answer not focusing on the hard circumstances first We need that. Otherwise, we end up reasoning backwards. We end up looking at the circumstances first and saying, well, yeah, I sympathize. But if the unborn are human beings, then that should direct what kind of answer we give to those circumstances or to those scenarios.
2: Yeah. Okay. So Krishnam left a comment here. Clinton, please share the link to the article. Uh, I will share a link to the article. I'm going to put a link to the article in the show notes uh, here on YouTube. And also when I extract the audio for the podcast, I'll I'll put the, the link to the audio in the show notes also in case people want to go and read it for themselves. Okay, so one last article I want to look at here, and then we have one more topic for, for today. Here is an article. We, I already mentioned Amy Coney Barrett, who serves as a counterexample to the, to the pro-choice talking point that women need abortion to be successful. Obviously, they don't because Amy Coney Barrett is a mother of six or seven children. I forget how many specifically. Oh, I, I think it's seven. Two adopted, one, one special needs. What's that? I believe it's seven. Yeah, and she obviously is able to hold down a career as a judge. She's currently serving on the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals, and she's being considered uh, for the Supreme Court. Now, here's an example of another woman who was able to to be able to have a child while going forward with with her with her life. And in fact, she was taking a, a an exam here, the bar exam, for to become a judge as well. And so, this is an article that's on CNN, and I'll also post these in the the show notes as well. The title is called Woman Goes Into Labor and Gives Birth in the Middle of Taking the Bar Exam. And it's written by Lauren M. Johnson of CNN. And I'll just go and read it in its entirety. It's pretty short. It says, taking the bar exam is hard enough, but one Illinois woman took it to the next level by having a baby in the middle of the test. Brianna Hill, a recent graduate of the Loyola University School of Law in Chicago, knew she would be pregnant during her bar exam, but she wasn't expecting a huge curveball in timing due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Quote, I thought I would only be 28 weeks pregnant when I took the bar, end quote, Hill told CNN. Quote, however, due to the pandemic, the test was pushed to October and I was going to be 38 weeks. I joked about taking the test from my hospital bed. Lesson learned, end quote. The remote version of the test is four 90-minute sections spread out over two days. Hill said the exam is proctored, so you have to sit in front of the computer the entire time to make sure you weren't cheating. Quote, I thought I felt something about 30 minutes into the test and actually thought, I really hope my water didn't just break, end quote, Hill said, quote, but I couldn't go check, and so I finished the first section. As soon as I stood up, when I finished, I knew my water had broken, end quote. But even the realization of going into labor didn't stop Hill from accomplishing her goal. Quote, I took my break, got myself cleaned up, called my husband, midwife, and mom, cried because I was a little panicked, then sat down to take the second part because my midwife told me I had time before I needed to go to the hospital, end quote. Hill said she got to the hospital around 5.30 p.m., and her new baby boy arrived just after 10 p.m. Quote, the whole time my husband and I were talking about how we wanted me to finish the test, and my midwife and nurses were so on board. There just wasn't, enough, wasn't another option in my mind, End quote, Hill said. So the next day, hospital staff provided Hill with an empty room to finish the test and put a do not disturb sign on the door. Hill took the rest of the exam in that room and even nursed her baby during breaks. Quote, I'm so thankful for the support system I had around me. The midwives and nurses were so invested in helping me not only become a mom, but also a lawyer, end quote, Hill said. Quote, my husband and law school friends provided me with so much encouragement so I could push through the finish line, even under less than ideal circumstances. And my family, especially my sister, just kept reminding me how I could do it, even when I wasn't so sure myself, end quote. Hill hasn't received her bar exam results, but she already has a job lined up. <laughs> So here we have another example of a successful woman who, who who is actually actually going into labor when she's taking her bar exam. Uh, so obviously her pregnancy and her having a kid didn't stop her from pursuing her career as a judge either. So there are really also, women who do serve as counterexamples to this pro-choice talking point.
1: I also really hope her baby becomes a lawyer one day. <laughs> that would be great.
2: Yeah. yeah.
1: I was literally in um, – how did you get, get into the law field? Well, I was literally born into it. <laughs>
2: All right. So changing gears here a little bit now that we've um, addressed this article about a woman who is who essentially lost her husband due to a freak accident at the beach when he was hit by a wave and considered having an abortion because of her 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 losing her husband. She eventually miscarried. But, you know, these thoughts were going through her head. And so just to kind of bring it all back home. We know that there are other resources available, and especially if if a woman like Brianna Hill, who was taking her bar exam, has the resources around her, it's very possible to continue to continue raising that child in fact, Shannon Dingle, who wrote the the first article, didn't indicate that she lacked resources in fact she she basically said that the The biggest uh, fear in her mind was that people would rescind the resources they were offering her if they knew that she was considering having this abortion. So...
1: You know, sorry, I just want to jump in on that. And ironically, Shannon actually ends up caricaturing the pro-life argument with her article where she's talking about how bad it is that the pro-life argument relies on caricatures by creating a caricature of the pro-life argument or excuse me, the pro-life movement by saying that, oh, they would have had... Um, pro-lifers would have hated her for the decisions she made they wouldn't have understood they wouldn't have understood exactly what she was going through and really that it's like saying you know you just complain about us caricaturing real people and then you resort to caricaturing real people i mean we really need that doesn't that actually does need to be uh considered and rejected and saying you know maybe you shouldn't do the same thing to us that you're accusing us of doing
2: right and so krishnam here says lovely story Uh, Indeed it was regarding the, regarding Brienne Hill here. All right. So we can go ahead and change gears looking back on the comments that we received on iTunes. And we we have received a few positive comments from people who are trying to counteract the negative ones we've got. So we definitely appreciate, uh, appreciate those comments. But one of the negative comments we received actually gave some arguments from the Bible that she thinks, or he thinks uh, Mr. Cower is uh, is the the name of the commenter that he thinks proves a pro-choice interpretation of of scripture. So I wanted to kind of go through these. We probably won't hit them all today. Uh, we'll just hit a few of these, but then we'll we'll go over the rest of them next week. So he starts off his comment. He's titled it "Awful." And then he starts off 10 biblical episodes and prophecies provide an unequivocal expression of God's attitude uh, toward human life, especially the ontological status of unborn children and their pregnant mothers to be brief summaries. So he lists out 10 of these, and I wanted to start with the 10th one because it's the most unintentionally hilarious of the 10 that he gave. So his 10th bullet point here is Jesus did not express any special concern for unborn children during the anticipated end times. And he quotes Jesus as saying, Woe to pregnant women and those who are nursing. So again, he says Jesus did not express any special concern for unborn children during the anticipated end times, except this is unintentionally hilarious because that's exactly what he was doing right there is he was expressing concern for pregnant women. He was essentially saying that, you know, he hopes when and, and I'm not sure he was specifically talking about the end times here. It depends on your interpretation of scripture. If you hold to a. To to a view, I, I forget what they call it. Uh, there there are a lot of terms they use regarding the end times, uh, you know, it, regarding your eschatology, your view of of what the end times are. Some people, you know, some people might think this is relating to the end times, where you know Jesus raptures the church, and then there are those who are left behind, that kind of thing. I used to hold to that as a as a kid, but as I've yeah. studied scripture and studied hermeneutics, I've kind of abandoned that position, and now I consider myself a partial preterist, in which uh, I don't think there's going to be an actual rapture of the church that much of what we read in Revelation was actually future prophecy for persecution of the church, essentially. I still hold to some of it happening in the future, like the thousand-year reign of Christ, but much of it, I think, was was actually future prophecy for church persecution, not necessarily for the end times. And so I consider myself now kind of a partial preterist. And so here, I don't think he was necessarily speaking of the end times, but a a future event where the church would be be persecuted. And of course, Jesus, Jesus was saying, woe to pregnant women and those who are nursing, because having a child is going to, you know, is going to make it more difficult to escape when persecution comes. So he was actually expressing a special concern, you know, maybe not for unborn children, themselves but for the pregnant women and the ones who are nursing but by extension he was expressing concern for for the children as well because if you if you do have children that's going to slow you down if you're going to try and escape persecution so this isn't in any way a passage which indicates that fetuses are not persons or that it's okay to to abort fetuses just because having children will will make escape slower and that kind of thing.
1: I think something else that needs to be kept in mind, Greg Kochel has made this point very well. As he said, you know, never read a Bible verse. Mm -hmm. And any verse, because Bible verses aren't even scriptural to begin with. They were added later um, to make Bible reading easier to uh, make it easier. For
2: clarity, clarity, you're speaking of the numbers that are indicated, right? The chapter numbers, verse numbers. Yeah, right.
1: Yeah. So it's the actual it needs to be read in the context of the actual text itself i mean and i've actually it's kind of funny having conversations with some people about this and they say oh well you know other churches don't believe that and i'm going well yeah i mean some people reject that claim but that doesn't mean they have a good basis for rejecting it by the way um this is how you read any book any book you have to read you you can't just pull out a section and say oh you know this is what this means and say well what does the rest of the context mean or what is the rest of the passage that you pulled that from actually mean. oh no we uh it doesn't matter uh yeah it does that's how any book is read that's how any book was written so it's very any argument that somebody uses from scripture needs to be able needs to be read in the context what the author was trying to communicate what the cultural background was the historical background and also the scriptural background uh it's actually really funny when you watch atheist pages they try and pull out a contradiction and it's like you know i'm pretty sure the author was a little bit smarter than that um and would have actually had an actual meaning they were trying to accomplish there when they wrote that passage.
2: Right. And I I think Greg Hochul's advice here, never read a Bible verse is probably one of the best pieces of advice you can offer to to a Christian as far as properly understanding scripture and doing proper hermeneutics. Because the first thing we need to understand is the context in which it's written. Now that could mean the context of the overall chapter or the overall book but there are also considerations regarding what the historical context of the of the book was written in and those kinds of things so if if a christian wants to interpret scripture correctly there are a lot of contextual things they need to understand and so i don't think every christian needs to study biblical hebrew and greek in order to be able to to translate the text themselves that's why we have translators and hopefully the translators we do have are are good translators and i think for the most part you know we have very good translations myself i prefer the new american standard bible uh, i've heard that that's probably the best word for word translation but again even translating word for word does not capture everything that's being expressed you need to you know you need to consider everything that that goes into what's being said here. So even reading a word-for-word translation isn't necessarily enough. So it's good to have various translations that you can, you know, look at the various verses through. So that was the first one I wanted to do just because of how unintentionally hilarious it was. You know, nothing against the the person who wrote this, but obviously that was not a very good example of why you should be pro-choice if you if you believe scripture. But the rest of these also are, are just basically proof texts that pro-choice people like to like to bring out of scripture. If you take scripture as a whole, it's pretty much impossible to take anything but a pro-life point of view. Uh, j- just a, Just a few examples here. Scripture throughout the Old Testament and New Testament uses the same word in Hebrew and Greek to refer to unborn children as it does to born children. So clearly scripture does not differentiate between the different kinds of children. If you're going to, to say, well, Scripture never talks about person, it never says fetuses are persons. Well, it never says anybody is a person. It does talk about human beings being created in the image of God, but obviously that's not a physical image because Scripture also teaches that God is spirit, and so those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So it's not a physical image, it's it's the, it's the an image meaning uh, likeness, that we are created like God. We have certain capacities in our nature. We're, we're created with the rest nature, but we have certain capacities which also mimic God. God is creative. Humans are also creative. God is rational. Humans are also rational. In fact, God actually uh, states in the book of Isaiah, come let us reason together. God actually reasons with his people. And throughout Jesus' ministry, we see him reasoning with his detractors. So being made in God's image means that we were made with, the, with a nature that is similar to God's. And that nature inheres in us from the very beginning, from fertilization. We also see certain verses, like the verses in Psalm, uh, where, for example, I, I want to say it's Psalm 51, where the psalmist writes, in sin my mother conceived me. So throughout this, we read that the scripture writers took a continuity of personal identity from the very beginning, from when they were conceived. And then, of course, we have various accounts, like when uh, pregnant Mary approached pregnant Elizabeth. Mary was pregnant with first trimester Jesus, and Elizabeth was pregnant with third trimester John, John the Baptist. John the Baptist is said to have leapt in the womb at the approach of Mary because she was pregnant with Jesus. There's no reason to take anything other than a pro-life view from Scripture, if you consider Scripture as a whole. You know, we have uh, the book of Jeremiah, in which God told Jeremiah that child sacrifice never even entered into his mind to command. Uh, and of course, abortion is an act of child sacrifice. You're sacrificing your child for the promise of a better life, similar to how the pagans sacrificed to the gods of Baal and Molech. Uh, yeah, so abortion is a modern version of child sacrifice. And uh, Krishnam here seems to agree. He says, I don't think there's any verse in the Bible that advocates abortion or in fact murder unless it's, it is read within the context. So yeah, so no no verses actually advocate for abortion. You have to pull verses out of context. In order to argue for abortion. Taking scripture as a whole will leave you with with a pro-life view. And in fact, uh, Christians throughout most of Christian history have, uh, have unanimously rejected abortion as a grave evil. Some of the earliest Christian texts, like the Didache and the Epistle of Barnabas, condemn abortion and infanticide in no uncertain terms. And it's true that the early church fathers, all the way through the Protestant reformers unanimously rejected abortion. So if you support abortion, that's a relatively new view in the Christian church, and you're, you're not only opposing historic Christian teaching, but you're also opposing the greatest thinkers of the church who've ever lived.
1: Additionally to that, if you're going to contend or argue that scripture can lead you to affirming a pro-choice view on abortion, you also, you, can, you also have to contend with what we know from the science of embryology and what we also know from moral reasoning about the nature of the unborn. Uh, and I'll, I'll just for the sake of argument, I'll assume yeah, the Bible doesn't tell us anything about the nature of the unborn. That's not the purpose of the Bible. The Bible doesn't tell us about the nature of Native Americans, even though Native Americans were a people group that existed at the same time the Bible was written. That's not the purpose of the Bible. The purpose of the Bible is to show us God's relationship to his kingdom, which is human beings. And to show us how we can get right with God. The whole point of the Bible is to show us how we get salvation from our sin and can be reconciled with God. Mm -hmm. Now, that said, if you're going to argue that, oh, the Bible says the unborn aren't even human beings, you also have to contend with what we know from the science of embryology. The science of embryology is very clear about what the unborn are. You pick up any embryology textbooks such as um, TBM Prasad and What's the name in Keith Moore's book, The Developing Human? The most recent edition was written in 2019. And they say, in the first chapter of their book, they say, you know, human development begins with the union of a sperm and egg at fertilization. And it's interesting when people say that, oh, the idea that life begins at conception is a religious teaching. Actually, it's not. The Bible doesn't even talk about what conception or fertilization are. That's a teaching that comes from embryology. We've known this for years. In fact, our mutual friend, Steve Jacobs, who was a researcher at the University of Chicago, He's already settled the question when he did his survey of 5000 biologists on when does a new the life of a new human being begin. 96% responded that it's at fertilization. This question isn't even up for debate anymore. So if you're going to say that oh the bible teaches the unborn aren't even human being or that life begins at some other stage in pregnancy, you not only have to contend with an accurate reading of scripture, a reading of what early Christian thinkers taught, you also have to contend with the science of embryology today. Those are three very big areas that you need to argue against. And frankly, that's almost an impossible task to do.
2: Okay, so we'll we'll cover a couple more of these and then uh, we'll go ahead and end the program and we'll cover the rest of these next week but the, these the first two bullet points that he provides are very common scriptures used to try and show that abor- that abortion is permissible to Christians today the first one comes from exodus 21 22 through 25 which says you know which he's summarizing here a pregnant woman who is injured and aborts the fetus warrants financial compensation only to her husband suggesting that the fetus is property not a person I'm not going to read read the passages here uh, in the interest of time, but essentially, the, his interpretation here is not is not a sure interpretation. It, it because the the way that a pro, that a pro life person would interpret this, especially considering the rest of Scripture in which we know that the unborn are uh, considered children, just like children outside the womb are. Scripture uses the same word for for both. That we would say, well, it's it's not financial compensation only uh to her husband but that if there's death not just death of the woman but death of the fetus also then you were to take life for life actually you know it'll probably be better if i do uh if i do read this just to have a point of reference some of our listeners might be if they're if they're interested in the religious discussion here might actually be unfamiliar with these passages so i'm going to go ahead and read it uh from exodus 21 22 through 25 It says, if men struggle with each other and strike a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet there is no injury, he shall surely be fined as the woman's husband may demand of him, and he shall pay as the judges decide. So if she gives birth prematurely, there's no injury, he'll be fined. But if there is any further injury, then you shall appoint as a penalty life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. So what's at issue here is a premature birth. It's not a miscarriage, as some people uh, as some people think it is, you know. Especially depending on the translation that you have, most translations say that a premature birth is what what's at issue here. One translation that did actually specifically say miscarriage. I, I once did a. a I once compared this to different translations and the RSV actually said it was a miscarriage that was in mind here. But the RSV, from what I understand, has always kind of been seen as a more liberal translation of the scriptures anyway. So it was actually interesting to me that that the RSV would say miscarriage, but all the other translations that I, uh, that I looked at actually said premature birth, not miscarriage. Now, some of them did have a little footnote and say that it's possible uh, to take miscarriage as an interpretation. But the interpretation that most other biblical uh, translators went with was that premature birth, not a miscarriage, is in mind. And uh, there is more to say on that too. I have a book here called Medical Ethics by John M. Frame, who is a theologian, but also looking at the topic of medical ethics through a scriptural lens. And he actually has a pretty in-depth discussion of this passage. And I'll, I'll just um, I'll just mention a few notes here. I, I won't read the whole thing because it's pretty lengthy. But I'll, I'll just kind of uh, pinpoint a few a few points that he makes and then i'll i'll source this in the show notes in case anybody wants to pursue the book and and take a look at this also so does the argument here rest upon an adequate interpretation of the passage in other words that the the fetus is seen as less of a person and he says we answer that is john M. frame uh answers in the negative uh oh actually this is a This is from a report of the Committee to Study Abortion. So I don't think this is John M. Frame. This is actually coming from a a church committee. So that's that's why they were using we. And so this this is a committee of, of, I believe, a Presbyterian church? Uh, The General Assembly of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Yeah. Uh, Okay, so this is a committee that John Frame actually uh, was a part of. So he says here, we answer in the negative, that is that this does not show that that fetuses are less persons. And it says, in the first place, the term Yeled in verse 22 never refers elsewhere to a child lacking recognizable human form or to one incapable of existing outside the womb. The possibility of such a usage here as the interpretation in question requires is still further reduced by the fact that if the writer had wanted to speak of an undeveloped embryo or fetus, there may have been other terminology available to him. There was the term Golem, Psalm 139.16, which means embryo fetus, but in cases of the death of an unborn child, scripture regularly designates him not by Yeled, not even by Golem, but by nefel, that is, one untimely born. So the use of Yeled in verse 22, therefore, indicates that the child in view is not the product of a miscarriage, as the interpretation in question supposes. At least this is the most natural interpretation in the absence of de- decisive considerations to the contrary. So here, John Frame and the rest of the committee actually look at the, the words used in Hebrew here to show that that miscarriage is not the best interpretation of it. He gives other arguments too, just from the fact that it speaks here of the penalty different than it does regarding other deaths. I won't go to get into those here, but I will, I will source this in case uh, any of the listeners want to actually go and and research this, or I might even, um, yeah, I probably won't won't list the reasons in the show notes because I don't have that much space to do so, but yeah, I'll definitely source them in case they want to check that out for further reading.
1: I think it's worth also looking at the passage and understanding that it's referring to an accident if it is referring to the death of the unborn child it's referring to an accidental death it's not referring to intentional. Killing. and it's worth asking people you know do you think there is a difference between accidental and intentional killing and then we can get a little bit more into that is there willful negligence that led to accidental killing or was it just negligence that couldn't be avoided and so we could say that yeah you know i mean they don't hold the, that stiff penalty for killing the unborn child, partially because they weren't even intending to do so. They might have not even known the woman they struck was pregnant. So there is that there is a bit of a there needs to be a bit of a moral differentiation there is, were they trying to intentionally kill her child? There's nothing in the passage that would indicate that. So it's not even comparable to abortion. It's comparable to an accidental killing, more like manslaughter. Even in today's society, we hold manslaughter on a different level than we do, say, first-degree and second-degree murder in our law, because we understand there is intention does play a significant role. First-degree murder involves a level of intention and foresight. I'm planning to kill this person. I'm getting the murder weapon ready. I'm getting my my alibi ready. Second-degree murder involves, you know, I killed them in a crime of passion. I find out some guy was sleeping with my wife. We get into a fight, and I kill him right there on the spot. That would be second-degree murder. I intended to kill him, but I didn't plan it out beforehand. I just got angry, and I... Should have known better, and I wound up going ahead and killing him. Manslaughter is a little bit different. Now there can, And that seems to be more comparable to what's going on here, is somebody accidentally killed... These two men are fighting, like me and Clinton are fighting. We accidentally strike somebody and kill them. We didn't necessarily murder them, but we will be held accountable because we were being careless. We were, we were being idiots. Right. And then, even then, there can be two types of manslaughter. There can be the willful negligence, and then a negligence that couldn't be avoided. I'm running along you know, I'm running after my dog or something and I accidentally knock a woman over because I didn't see her step out from behind a corner. I knock her down and she gets hurt. Will I be held accountable for that? Maybe, maybe not, because I didn't even see her coming. It was just purely an accident and there was no way I could have avoided it. So that needs to be, that framework needs to be considered here. And what it sounds like the biblical passage is saying is that they're not going to be held accountable for murder because it wasn't murder. It was an accidental killing. Yeah, it was a tragedy, and that's why there's going to be a punishment still, because they were being negligent, but it's not the same thing as saying, hey, I want you to kill my child for me. All right, go, um, here's how I'm going to do it. With abortion, we know that's exactly what happens. You read any abortion manual, Warren Hearn's abortion practice, Samuel Rollins abortion care, there's a level of foresight and intention and planning there that goes on that is not comparable to the passage in question. So even if the passage in question does refer to the killing of the unborn child. It has no bearing on abortion as it's practiced today.
2: So we've covered two of these 10 positions. We'll cover the, the remaining eight next week hopefully you've uh, you've enjoyed this discussion and uh, obviously this is more of a, of a religious argument so not everyone who listens to us may be interested in this discussion per se but if you've enjoyed it you know we ask that you share it around social media share it to you know facebook twitter wherever you frequent yeah. and so if you'd be interested in helping to financially support the podcast we, we would definitely appreciate that too greg cunningham of Center for Bioethical Reform says there are more people working full time to kill unborn babies than there are working full time to save them. So every little bit that that you can help support us with helps. Uh, you know, it helps provide you know some of the more expensive books to help keep up with the literature on abortion. It helps you know, with equipment we might need or hosting a podcast, things like that. So anything, if you feel led, uh, by all means, any little any little bit would help. And so you can go to the Life Training Institute website. That's www.prolifetraining.com. You can click on Donate on the menu at the top. Just make sure to put my name in the notes section so that LTI knows to put your donation into my account so that it'll get back to me. Coming up, we actually do have an interview Yeah, Nathan and I are going to be interviewing Christopher Kayser on a book that he published this month, I believe. It's already been published?
1: Uh, About a week and a half ago.
2: Okay, yeah. So we're going to be interviewing him on Tuesday, the 27th of October. So coming up in, uh, what's today, the 13th? So yeah, actually coming up in two weeks from today at 2 o'clock p.m. Pacific time. We'll be interviewing him on his book, Disputes in Bioethics. So that'll be a, a great discussion. We're also trying to get uh, Mark Newman on the on the podcast to talk about his recent book, Contenders, which uh, until that podcast uh, interview happens, you can actually read my review of Contenders on the LTI blog. Have you reviewed Contenders, Nathan? Or?
1: Uh, I'm a little behind on writing right now, but uh, my review should be coming out pretty soon.
2: Okay, so you I can look say, for that.
1: I will say right off the bat, may maybe one of the most important books written by a pro in 2020. Uh, because it is focused on getting the church more involved in taking on abortion.
2: Yeah. So you can look forward to that uh, review when it comes out. Uh, And you can see my review currently on the LTI blog until next week. Thank you again for joining us and we'll see you next time.